It's Friday, April 29th. This is Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you. John Hicks in just a moment. Sapria Duvetti. And in about a half hour's time, uh, one of the candidates for the leadership of Canada's Conservative Party, that is Jean Charest, will be joining us uh, live on this Friday morning. Whenever you're catching it live, uh, whether you're catching it later, we appreciate you being here. Uh, we're going to get to some uh, newsworthy stuff with Supriya, who's been keeping a, an eye on a couple of stories. But, of course, she's also uh, one of those national commentators. You read her stuff in, in papers like The Globe and Mail, and you read her columns nationally. And she's got one out just yesterday uh, talking about Elon Musk and Twitter. And, and Johnny, I know that you, you feel like you've had enough talk of Elon Musk and Twitter this week, and nobody could blame you. And I think you speak for many people. I'm I'm fine now. I you're was a little okay. grumpy the other day. I, no, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. I think a lot of people are like ready to just sort of like move on from that conversation. Maybe they get a little bit annoyed about that conversation. But the fact of the matter is, it's a big story with big implications. We got to talk about it. And Sapria has been writing about it, and in particular around the freedom of speech angle. So that'll be coming up in just a little bit. Plus some uh, developments on on uh, uh, testing or approvals for vaccines for young kids. And I know that that's going to mean a lot to. A lot of young parents. This is kind of your last call. If you're listening to us live streaming on Mixler Audio or if you're watching us live on YouTube, you do still have time to submit a question uh, for Jean Charest. We're going to be putting your questions in front of him. Want to give you an opportunity to ask pointed, direct, specific questions. We won't get too far down rabbit holes, but questions can be specific. For example, his team just rolled out his environment plan that he says will make Canada an energy superpower. It'll export clean, ethical Canadian energy to the world. That word ethical has been used in energy conversations in Canada for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. Will it resonate? Especially, will it resonate with voters in a general election? Will it maintain a conservative climate plan, maintain credibility, while at the same time eliminating a consumer price on carbon? That's the question a lot of people have after viewing the early draft from Josh Ray just this week about what a conservative climate plan would look like under his leadership. So we'll get into that uh, with the leadership hopeful Josh Ray coming up later in the show today. Plus, of course, trash talk and your comments live as you watch this. That yes. through, of course, the real talk RJ hashtag. <laughs> what are you amped up about? Was that a trash talk? I just yes, love trash talk. I love to Fridays. It's, it's nice weekend. to just blow off a little steam and head into the weekend with a smile yeah, on our face. Get it out. And uh, if Lindsay is tuned in right now, uh, you're up, Lindsay. Lindsay's in the uh, Lindsay's in the bullpen right now. Just just warming up. We've got a great email locked and loaded there. This show is presented by our friends at Bitcoin. Well, if you have questions about Bitcoin, you're seeing it mentioned a lot in the news. It's coming up more frequently, like our roundtable a couple of weeks ago. We we're talking about the blockchain and Bitcoin and how does it fit into the economic future of jurisdictions, cities, provinces, a nation. It's become part of the political conversation. If you have a question about Bitcoin, you want to ask it to a real human that you can trust. I recommend Benny. You can find Bitcoin well under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. I'll ask uh, Supriya and Jean both this morning about this convoy rolling into Ottawa this weekend. They're expecting oh my. between 500 and 1,000 motorcycles. It's called the Rolling Thunder Are they on convoy. tour now? Yeah, I don't know. Well, and everybody's kind of wondering now, if, is, it, is it a protest convoy? And if so, what exactly are they protesting? What's the purpose behind it? I was reading some interviews yesterday where one of the organizers said they're focused on holding a service. Uh, and I'm not going to scoff at this. They say they're focused on holding a service at the National War Memorial which they say was desecrated by police 
during the Freedom Convoy protests in February. That's when police put barricades around the memorial. You remember this? Because people were like yeah. dancing on the, you know, I mean, it was people were getting pretty upset, especially with the disrespect around the tomb of the unknown soldier. Mm-hmm. You see Ottawa police just the other day. They're, 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 they say that they've identified the woman that was dancing on the, the tomb of the unknown soldier. They're going to lay charges there. Yeah. And then protesters later tore that fencing down. Some of them appeared to be veterans. And so these organizers say in a video that they posted on Wednesday of this week that this weekend coming up, they'll allow those veterans who were removed from the memorial to give back dignity to the site and to lay a wreath. So we'll see if it's if it's a chill, respectful ceremony. I'm all for it. People have the right to do it. Seems like you're trying to correct a mistake. But you wouldn't blame the, the good folks of Ottawa, especially those that are living downtown, for, for maybe cringing or bracing themselves a little bit, wondering what this might look like. How much have they been through? Like, come on. Is it a little? It's a little bit different if they're on. If these demonstrators, these occupiers, I don't know if they're occupiers yet. You can't really say that. But but if they're on motorcycles, it's a little bit different than when they're rolling in in big rigs and RVs with hot tubs strapped to the back, right? I mean, you live downtown. I yeah. used to when I first moved to Edmonton. I lived downtown. It's no like downtown anywhere is noisy enough. Yeah. Let alone with big rigs yeah. lined up honking and. I wouldn't blame folks in Ottawa for this. It's a good weekend to get out to the cottage. Yeah, take the weekend Good weekend to get out of town and just hope you get get back into town on Sunday evening. Pop culture news, pretty interesting stuff as well. Hey, I'm into this. The the late, late TV scene is going to look a little bit different. Kind of this guy that's been the sort of... I like him. He infused his way into the uh, pop culture... uh, What what do you want to call it? The uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, he... he, he, Fused himself into the fabric yeah. with, I think, his carpool karaoke. Is that what James Corden re- what really skyrocketed him to success? Of course. And he's, he's I, don't, I, I didn't know nothing about him. And then all of a sudden he was everywhere a few years ago. And yeah. I was like, I think he just connects with people. He's an average guy. You know what I mean? And people like him. Uh, but yeah, he's calling it quits. Yeah, well, so he's, he's not calling it quits. You you detail. Well, no, I mean, he's, he's gone next year, basically. And, and an emotional goodbye, it seemed to his audience. He says he's going to be gone by 2023 wanted to go on for three more years lawyers couldn't get it so obviously the network doesn't want him there which is i don't know it just seems strange for me i mean his ratings are good but i always think it's interesting when the details get out yeah right he wanted one year they wanted three years and then you don't the know money, if that's accurate or true or not what the money was looking like he yeah. did all right i would imagine 70 million he's worth right now so he's not retiring you know <laughs> i'd retire on he's 70 good. he's good what so. would be your minimum for retiring at this stage for in me? your life yeah what could you make it on what I, would be your bare minimum that you'd go i'm, I'm walking right. i'm not gonna work another day come on i'm not greedy you give me a cool mill and i'll i'll buy a little patch of land in uh Beaumont re- or can wherever you reti- can you retire on a mill I i'll make think- it work yeah get a couple baby cows and a chicken okay. coop and okay call it i quits. see so but that sounds to me that you still got a lot of work you'd, you'd have to be you'd have to be going off the grid you'd be like you know probably you'd dig your own well <laughs> the first you'd have the big solar setup solar farm yeah okay hey johnny if you were going to build that <laughs> Where could you go to get a free quote? Well, I might go to Kubi Energy. Yeah, is that right? Would you Would you maybe go there? Why don't we do it? Let's do it. It just felt like a perfect inroad to remind you, because Sapria's coming right up. We're going to yeah. talk to her. Let's just fit this in here. Solar energy solutions to power your life. I think I'd need a minimum of like three to retire. Maybe two. Yeah. Five would be nice. Ten would be great. Ten would be perfect. For that very niche customer that just won the lottery. And is looking to build their solar setup and get totally off the grid. May we recommend our good friends at Kubi Energy. 
They're providing solar energy solutions to power your life, and they're doing it in applications you might not have even thought of. I recommend you follow them on Instagram. Some really cool examples of how more and more people are going green with Kubi Energy. Now, once you've trusted your project to them and it's all set up and you're realizing what this new game looks like, your power bills are down, you're going to be able to sell back to the grid, you're going to want to find a structure or an arrangement that's right for you. And that's where Park Power comes into the mix. Our friends at Park Power partner with Kubi Energy on a solar rebate, a buyback that is way higher with regards to what's going to go back into your pocket. 25 cents versus six. Put it that way with the big guys makes way more sense to go with Park Power. If you're one of those that have solar panels set up, you're going to want to talk to them, get more details on that rebate at parkpower.ca. And a quick shout out to our friends at Infinity Healthcare. They know because they talk to families every single day that more and more Canadians are in a tough situation. They're doing everything they can to provide for their kids and their parents need their support as well. This sandwich generation is looking for caregivers and a caregiving scenario that will allow their parents to age in place with the supports they need at a level they're comfortable with. This can include getting rid of things like language barriers, maybe some religious or cultural sensitivities. The team at Infinity Healthcare uses a personality matching structure to make sure that both sides are excited about the personal relationship before that actual caregiving happens. It's what sets them apart from other healthcare organizations. You can find Infinity under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Well, every Friday, right around this time, it's our absolute pleasure to check in with our very good friend, Sapria Devetti. You know Sapria. She's the Director of Policy and Engagement at the Center for Media, Technology, and Democracy at McGill University and a member of our Real Talk editorial board. It's good to see you, my friend. Good morning. Are you uh, taking a look at this? uh, I mean, it's hard to ignore the story of this rolling thunder convoy that's heading into Ottawa this weekend. They're estimating about 500 motorcycles. They're estimating a lot of them or at least a significant number of them are going to be Canadian veterans that are keen on placing a wreath at the National War Memorial. It sounds like they kind of want to make things right after it got a little messy a couple of months ago with the Freedom Convoy. Are you feeling trepidatious about this? Is your heart in your throat a little bit about this based on the previous Ottawa occupation? How are you processing it? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard not to, right, given just everything that happened with the Freedom Convoy. And there does seem to be at least a little bit of overlap in terms of some of the organizers or some of the folks that are involved um, with this weekend's protest. So I can certainly appreciate the fact that if you're on the ground in Ottawa, like you live in the downtown or the downtown adjacent areas, you kind of have a little bit of like PTSD over this, right? You don't want to be subject to the same noise or some of the same disruptions that the uh, Freedom Convoy subjected Ottawa to. And it'll be you know, interesting to see how differently the Ottawa police and the security forces on the ground deal with this protest uh, as opposed to the, you know, previous protest. But I think there was already an arrest made um, for some of this already getting a little bit out of hand. Yeah. And uh, you sort of wonder if there's going to be a certain element to this group that are showing up feeling like there was unfinished business as opposed to making things right. And so, yeah, like you said, I mean, if if you're the Ottawa police right now, you don't want to be a case study twice within two months. Yeah. So I'll be interested to see how they manage this. They've got to, they've got to sort of gently find that balance, right, of people's right to movement and assembly and speech, while at the same time not, I think, repeating some of the same mistakes that was, they were so heavily criticized for that the chief essentially paid for with his job the first time around. 
Yeah. Um, and like, you know, I think what you just touched on there is, is key. You need to strike the right balance. People don't necessarily have the right to disrupt people's lives, but of course they have the right to protest and to peacefully assemble and to, you know, make their, their views known. Um, that ends, however, when you're incredibly disruptive and you're impeding on people's, you know, day-to-day lives. Probably the biggest story of the week, uh, easily, uh, Elon Musk's $43 billion takeover of Twitter, and it prompted a, a, an op-ed in the Globe and Mail. You and your colleague at McGill University, Taylor Owen, uh, ask or wonder, whose speech will Elon Musk's Twitter be protecting exactly? Uh, what prompted this one, Sapri? Is that kind of where, where your thoughts immediately went was the big free speech promises he's been making? Yeah, and it's really interesting how we talk about not just Twitter or Musk or any of this, but how we talk about platform governance to begin with. So just slight clarification, Taylor Owen is actually my boss, um, a colleague, yeah, but also my, okay, sure. you know, the, yeah, um, but just, um, you know, he was approached by, by the Globe and Mail and then we were like, okay, let's, let's, let's write something um, because th- this is an interesting topic. It's in the news and, you know, there's a large amount of expertise um, that we have at the center. So we figured it was a good sort of place to start. And I think the first thing that we need to understand here is that the way Musk and others um, describe free speech isn't really accurate, right? And there seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding of what free speech even is. Um, Of course, everybody has the right to say offensive things, but you don't have the right to have that speech then be amplified by a private platform. And the other mistake that we make is that when we're talking about these platforms like Twitter or Facebook, we equate them with being the internet, but that's not, those aren't the same things. And so you of course have the right to say whatever you want, but you don't have the right uh, to have your speech go viral or to have your speech be amplified or to target your speech specifically at those that are most vulnerable. And, you know, Twitter and Facebook and all sorts of other social media platforms clearly realize this, which is why, you know, they've been putting up um, guardrails for the last little bit in terms of how to better deal with this. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, Musk has come out as this huge sort of uh, critic when it comes to content moderation generally, right? But content moderation doesn't limit speech. It just ensures more people have a voice. Um, when people leave Twitter because they're being relentlessly harassed or they're being relentlessly target targeted, um, that's worse for our discourse. And, and I these seem obvious to, to, to me, and I'm not sure why that gets lost in some of this conversation. Yeah, well, I want to read from your piece because this was one of the lines that I kind of kind of jumped out at me. You said sensible rules about what can and can't be said on social media platforms don't limit speech. They ensure that everyone has a voice. Toxic online content doesn't maximize speech. It actually limits our collective discourse by shutting out the voices of those who are targeted. And it can be interesting, I think, to compare Twitter as it is now or as it might be or even as it was back in the day to other platforms for so-called free speech, right? Like Trump's new platform and uh, reference parlor all the time and truth and that kind of stuff. Um, It's sort of, I I guess, ultimately, it's going to be, it's just going to take time to say, I don't know if you saw your follower count drop. I saw a lot of people uh, talking about how they saw a noticeable drop and whether or not that's bots being eliminated and wiped out or whether or not that's people actually leaving Twitter. I'm not sure anybody actually knows. We've reached out to a guy to get some insight on that for next week. Um, Chris Boosie, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, ultimately, six months from now, you wonder what the landscape might look like after there's, 
you know, been some time to establish what Musk's leadership, what sort of a stamp he might put on it. Yeah, totally. And um, it's it's interesting because at least anecdotally, that does seem to be the case, right? A lot of people are reporting follower drops and there have been at least a few folks that were previously banned from Twitter, or previously clicked off the platform that have now reactivated their accounts. And like, it's just one of these things where uh, Twitter does seem, I think they put out a statement to NBC or something and said that a lot of this was organic activity. Um, but uh, who knows? It'll be interesting to see what happens to the platform or even, you know, to be honest, if this even really goes through like I've been there are a couple of very smart folks out there who still seem somewhat um, doubtful that the deal will in fact fully close and that Musk will you know end up being the owner of Twitter so all of that also remains to be seen and worth keeping in mind but I think just going forward there's an interesting conversation to be had about who gets to regulate these platforms and should we leave these solely to the interest basically of billionaires, right? Um, or to the private interests of, of the market. And I, I think if we approached some of this in a more holistic manner in which we recognize that digital communication infrastructure is in fact integral to the way we operate nowadays, then they should probably be governed by us through our democracies and not necessarily solely through private interests. And if you look at the way we've allowed these um, platforms to sort of proliferate and to dominate the way we communicate with one another, like democratic platform regulation can actually maximize speech in a number of ways that the market is unable to. And one way that is an obvious way is if we had real interoperability rules where you could take your data and your social connections from one social media platform to another, you know, you're fostering much more healthy competition in the, in the platform space to begin with, but we don't have that because all of our data belongs to the platforms and we're effectively locked in to the platforms in which our data belongs. And that's kind of shitty because if you wanted to leave Twitter or Facebook or insert your platform here, you can't because all of your stuff is there. And then what do you do? You want to start anew every single time? Like, that's tough. Yesterday, this story caught my attention right out of the gates. Canadian Blood Services announces that by the end of September, it's going to end the blood ban that's been in place in Canada for decades uh, for men who have sex with men. And I saw the headline and I went, wow, like, this is a huge story. And then you start to read the details of it. And per usual, when you're getting set to donate blood, you'll fill out a questionnaire and it will ask if you've had multiple sexual partners over the past three months. And if you answer yes, it will ask if you've had anal or vaginal sex. And if you've had anal sex, you won't be able to donate blood just like before. And I'm sitting there paying attention to the details and trying to sort this out going, so really what's the difference? I mean, unless you're a celibate man who has sex with men or a celibate gay man or what have you, the rules are the same. Nothing's changed. Is it still a significant story? I, I mean, this is the problem when people just read the headline, right? And they don't read past the like second or third graph because that is how this is being framed as the, the ban has been lifted. And, you know, to be fair, I suppose the ban now 
applies equally to all people who have engaged in anal sex in the last three months. And it's no longer unique to gay men. But as you pointed out, the ban is still very much there. And the other thing that I think is interesting in all of this that has been sort of left out in the broader media conversation is that if you're a gay man who is taking um, PrEP drugs or these pre-exposure prophylaxis drugs uh, that you take to you know, limit your HIV exposure, you're also ineligible. And those are becoming increasingly um, used. And so even if you haven't had anal sex in the last three months, if you've taken a PrEP type drug, you're also ineligible. And I'm not sure why that isn't in some of the broader coverage of this, because folks need to know. Um, but I think all of this is, a it's obviously unfortunate. The Canadian Blood Services haven't done the best uh, job in terms of communicating why they have the ban in place or why they need it or why they've done these things. And it's just in line with a lot of the shitty comms that they have, you know, for a bunch of other things. And let me just give you one example. I don't know when you were on the radio, Ryan, if you had regular Canadian blood services spots, but in Toronto, we definitely did. And one of the regular spots that they would have is that they were in dire need of O negative blood. And the appeal was to folks that had O negative blood because they were universal donors and they were trying to appeal to their like, you know, general goodness um, that their blood was in high demand and it was needed. But if you're, if you have O negative blood, that means you can only receive O negative blood. So the better comms play here is to let people know with O negative blood that the supply is low. And if they end up in the hospital, they're going to need O neg blood. So they should probably better go out and donate. And yet you had this ass backwards way of communicating it. And so it just seems totally in line with the way that Canadian Blood Services tends to do a lot of their at, at like public facing comms. And it's unfortunate. I want to let our audience know that we'll, we'll be tackling this story uh, next week, early next week as well, and broadening the conversation. So we welcome your comments. Um, I'm most interested, as always, in hearing from people that are affected by these policies that have been affected by these policies. And, of course, we'll seek to speak with people that have been uh, advocating for changes to these policies, of course, for the past number of, of weeks and months. Your home turf in Ontario uh, getting set for an election and, and Premier Doug Ford uh, obviously seeking reelection had campaigned for a long time and become premier on talking about lean governments and balancing budgets. And, and speaking of just reading the headlines, I'm a little bit guilty of that here. But if, <laughs> but if you read the headlines on the budget he's putting in front of Ontarians, it's lots of infrastructure spending and, and running deficits. What does that say to you about what this election campaign is going to look like? I, I mean, I think basically the playbook that was pre-pandemic has been thrown out, right? And so it's worth noting that in 2018, the Ford government was very much running on a, hey, these liberal chuckleheads have been wasting your money and they're spending too much and you need us to rein in spending and to figure out Ontario's books. And that's gone out the window. And, you know, to a degree that's understandable, obviously, like the pandemic has changed things. Um, it's really exposed just how shitty our public health care system is in terms of being able to handle any, any degree of increase of people. Um, and prior to the pandemic, it was already pretty crappy. So, you know, there's lots of blame to go around there. But I think the problem going forward is for Ontario is we've kind of accepted a really low bar um, with Doug Ford and his government in managing the pandemic. And a lot of that is the fault of Jason Kenney and, and Scott Moe, because honestly, when you're comparing Ford to Kenny and Moe, then yeah, Ontario looks pretty good. But if you compare our response to like Nova Scotia, then yeah, we're, 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 not as good as we could be. And I think we need to start demanding a little bit better from our leaders in terms of how our healthcare system can really look like 
Um, but I don't know if we're going to have a serious conversation about that because, I mean, in the federal election, we certainly didn't. Um, and it was seemed like to be business as usual. We're uh, earlier this week reading a post from an Edmonton city councilor by the name of Andrew Knack, who was just he wrote it at like 1230 in the morning. I, I was kind of envisioning him like tossing and turning and, you know, awake, staring at the ceiling about covid response. And he, he's just wrestling with the fact that he sort of feels like everybody's just moved on. And Alberta's numbers this week, I mean, considering it's a province of about four and a half million people, um, you know, rather modest population compared to Ontario, the numbers are still significant. Sapria, Alberta averaging last week nine covid deaths a day, 63 covid deaths through the course of one week, including Two young people, two people in their 30s. Uh, and it's been interesting to, to see with regards to, you know, I mean, even in this context here talking about and we can be talking about economic recovery from COVID or we can be talking about sort of the the uh, the structural uh, observations that people were able to make leadership implications of COVID management and all those types of things. But do you think I mean, if the psyche of, you know, the average Canadian or at least some Canadians is to have moved on so to speak can you still see covid being a big election factor no probably not and i think you you hit the nail on the head and it's because a lot of it is psychological but most of it has been coming from our governments in terms of signaling that the pandemic is over but you're right in terms of our numbers um like our healthcare workers are are still strained right there are still huge staffing issues not just um in alberta as as i would presume would be the case but in ontario as well like surgeries and procedures are being postponed um and we we've just accepted an incredibly high burden of infection and what's really messed up about all of this of course is that we are allowing infections to happen at such a rate without having any real knowledge of what this virus is going to do to us down the line. And the more information we get, the scarier it is in terms of what this virus can do. Um, we have a host of knowledge from all sorts of other viruses that have you know, long-lasting uh, damaging effects. And I'm really not sure why we've decided to just throw in the towel without putting in investments like helping to clean our air right like this would be a very good thing if in every public place all of a sudden we started investing in you know filtration that would clean the air for us so that infections would be a lot lower or your risk would be a lot lower in some of these indoor places but we're not doing that we've just sort of like thrown in the towel and been like well let's just accept it but how are we going to accept it down the line if you know i don't know 10 15 20 percent of the people who have been infected end up having serious long-term effects. And what is that going to do to our healthcare system? I'm going to be talking to John Train about 12 minutes from now, I guess, maybe less than that. We'll see. He's just released his campaign, has his environment and clean growth plan and uh, essentially his climate plan. And probably the most notable element of it is dropping the consumer price on carbon uh, there are other elements he says he'll repeal bills c69 and c48 that's the one that conservatives have been calling the no more pipelines bill and that's that's the tanker ban too so we'll ask him about that he's talking about national infrastructure corridors which other conservative leadership hopefuls in races past have talked about and he's also i'm interested uh, in this one we'll ask him about this one has has talked about a critical infrastructure protection act which would make it a criminal offense to interfere with the construction of pipelines that that's the type of talk that energy industry supporters love to hear right and that can resonate with the base for sure 
But the real question is, Sabria, does the climate plan go far enough to remain credible in front of a general electorate, not to win the leadership, but to win an election? Do you think dropping the consumer price on carbon, which most experts say is pretty integral to a credible plan, do you think that it negates the impact of his plan or do you think that this one could be something? It's... No, I mean, it's it's not going to be enough for a general electorate. And, and I think increasingly the conservative out of touch with the general electorate on climate. And it's all well and good to be talking about how you're going to drop this, or you're going to drop that, and you're going to increase pipelines here and there. And I understand for the energy industry why you'd want uh, a bunch of folks talking in that way. But the reality is, is that climate change is already here. We're already feeling the effects. People are already dying because of it in this country and it's only going to get worse. And we were just talking about the pandemic. And I don't understand how we're not really having a national conversation, either in the conservative leadership race or, you know, in the Ontario election that's happening or, you know, pick your whatever moment here. But we're not talking about the intersection of climate change and pandemics, because we know that climate change uh, will increase the risk of these zoonotic spillovers and our chance of getting into a pandemic-like situation again. And there's very recent research to confirm that and basically says it's way worse than we had even ever really thought. And yet here we are still, you know, grappling with uh, consumer price on carbon instead of really talking about how we're going to, you know, adjust to the unfortunate reality of warmer climates, wetter climates, as well as, you know, an environment in which we are inundated with more and more viruses that can harm us. Yeah, well, let me tee this up for you. Right before we talked live, you sent me a quick text. Uh, this this piece in The Atlantic by Ed Young, I know caught your attention. And I had just, I appreciated you got it to me in just enough time that I could read it. And it's fascinating. Um, it's also alarming. We created the pandemicine by completely rewiring the network of animal viruses. Climate change is creating a new age of infectious dangers. For those in the audience hearing this or seeing this for the first time that haven't yet read the piece by Ed Yong at TheAtlantic.com, what especially caught your eye about the about the piece itself? That, okay. I mean, the general dreary, like, doomsdayness of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Aside right? from the, like, arm, the apocalyptic yeah. tone of it. Yeah. So, I mean, aside from that, it's just that a lot of, I think what was initially posited was that we'd be looking at some of this into the future. So like 10, 20 years from now, but the reality is because of the degree to which the earth has already warmed so much of what is happening um, is already because of climate change. And, you know, the researchers were very careful to, to say that, you know, they can't say with any degree of certainty that this pandemic was caused by climate change, but you're just increasing the likelihood of these events happening with a warming climate and it's it's really interesting because you know the atlantic is obviously an american publication these were american researchers um that have come out with this but the states is basically acting as though the pandemic is over and like okay that's it let's just forget about it but I mean, we're really going to have to grapple with this and figure out how to strengthen public health care, how to strengthen our healthcare systems more generally, and how to respond 
to these sorts of uh, events that will become increasingly likely. And that's not to mention the other sorts of infectious diseases that will become increasingly like, likely, like West Nile virus or, or dengue fever, for example, with the increase of mosquitoes in environments where we wouldn't necessarily have seen a bunch of mosquitoes before, right? So it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of like I'm taking crazy pills and everyone else is just not in on the same sort of uh, information, even though the information is available to everyone. It's like, we're all just ignoring it. Yeah. Well, and, and when you start reading about how there could be implications with regards to where bats are migrating or the, or the habitat around bats, and then, uh, these, you know, new realities around Ebola and the spread of Ebola. And, and like, there's absolutely no, if you start talking about, uh, Ebola, in the context of climate policy, then maybe people would take it more seriously. Or maybe people just still like Ebola, feel like Ebola is something that happens far, far away, but never where they live too. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, you know, when the pandemic first started, I remember there were a few very smart people who were like, listen, now we have to talk about the intersection of pandemics and climate change. And they were basically drowned out by a chorus of pundits that were like, no, 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 we can't just make this everything about climate. But it's like, well, please take a 101 class and figure out that they do very much intersect. And if you don't think they intersect or you're trying to tell, you know, a general audience that they don't intersect and you don't have any business being uh, with a public platform or being media facing because you're just like spewing more bullshit into the airwaves that we don't necessarily need. Like we do have to figure this out and I'm not sure how we're going to do that. If you have one entire side of the political establishment that refuses to even grapple with the notion that this is a reality. And then the other political side, which, you know, isn't <laughs> coming up with better concrete solutions or, or answers in order to, actually grapple with this either it's like we're all just sort of uh twiddling our thumbs and are waiting for the bad stuff to happen um without prepping people on how to go about dealing with it once it gets here should i have opened with uh, i know we're so down i'm such a downer today no yeah. <laughs> no and i was just about to be more of a downer i but not i i didn't you know but i was gonna ask if i should have opened with like a sort of a condolences type vibe I don't know how big of a Raps fan you are. Last night, I know that uh, yeah. after they went down 3 nothing to the Sixers and then came back and won a couple in a row, and everybody kind of wondered if they could pull it off, as unlikely as it might have been. But that wasn't the deal last night. I think they got spanked by about 40 points. Did, did you feel it, like the, the, the loss itself? Are you big Raps? I know the people around you, at least, probably. You're right in the heart yeah, of it Yeah, yeah. I know? mean, yeah. So uh, I actually... Um, I woke up to the end of the fourth quarter, okay, um, looked okay. at the score. Like I fell asleep <laughs> on the couch. My husband was watching the whole time. So at least I didn't see it happen. Yeah. Um, but you know, like whatever it's, this is a great team. I, I tweeted last night, I retweeted a tweet where uh, a bunch of the fans that were in Jurassic park were like booing the fans that were like leaving the, the, the stadium as yeah. they were, you know, with minute with like minutes left and, it's just you got to have hope for uh, next season, believe in them, and they're young, they're good. There's a few changes that need to be made clearly, but, I mean, it's it's so hard not to get excited about this team. They're a fun team to watch. Yeah. And uh, and just a couple years removed from a championship, a few years removed from a championship, so uh, so no uh, 
No big deal. Hey man, it's it's no not, it's not like the Habs who went from Stanley, Stanley Cup, Cup final, final to last place. Right? Oh my gosh! So like... I know. Are you you're you're? I mean, you're born and raised Montrealers, so you got to be a Habs fan, or and you can't be like a Habs and a Leafs fan, really. Although yeah, I'm a, I'm a grown, born and raised Flames fan that worked for the Oilers for seven years, so I guess anything's possible. But Ouch. it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what happens. The, the Leafs are a good team, but they're running into an even better team. So we'll see what happens in the first round. It's always so good to see your face. Have an amazing weekend. Thanks for making time for us, Sapria. You too, Ryan. Talk soon. Yeah, you got it. You can catch Sapria Devetti every Friday here on Real Talk at 840 Mountain Time. That's 1040 Eastern, or as we say, live or later on our YouTube and podcast like archives. And, of course, I would imagine that uh, Andrew Walker's got some more rap stock coming up uh, today on the hedge. Today yeah. on the hedge. You can subscribe to the hedge. Andrew Walker, anywhere you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What a big first week for him. Huge. And for you, producing the show. Been doing an amazing job. I'm loving it. How about those <laughs> Leafs, man? The Leafs are going to run into the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? That's, I mean. That's the, the collision course that they're on. We're talking like it's bad for them, but that, that's going to be an incredible series. All the matchups are just, they're going to be epic this year. It's, yeah. And the fans are all back in the stands. It's just, we're, we're revved up to go. So this is going to be good. Yeah, I, I don't think it's actually, is it, is it actually confirmed yet? I'm not really sure, but but we'll see. The the uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs, of course, everybody had Austin Matthews with his 60 goals, and everybody's wondering yeah. if he's going to win the Hart Trophy. And then here in the Western Conference, some interesting things going on, too. Yeah. Like, you know, Nashville, everybody was, well, Calgary, is Calgary going to be able to get through Nashville? Because Calgary's looking really good. Mm -hmm. And then Saros, Nashville's goalie, gets hurt. And that changes the game there. And then you've got the Oilers and the LA Kings without Drew Doughty. And so everybody says, well, here's the Oilers' chance to punch their ticket to the second yeah. round for just the second time in Connor McDavid's career in the NHL. So. And then what, Flames and Oilers in the second? Oh, my Woo! gosh. Baby. We're going to burn this sucker to the ground. It's going to be unbelievable. <laughs> you can send us your hot sports takes anytime <laughs> to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Coming up in, uh, Haas says nobody expected the Raps to even make the playoffs this year. So really, it was a successful season. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and they ran into a really good team. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, except for try again next year. That's mm -hmm. always tough for fans to swallow, but. You know, this is interesting from Bruce, who's tuned in live. We're talking about that piece in The Atlantic. It really is a fascinating one and, and uh, sort of the story around how climate change fits into, um, you know, humankind on planet Earth, uh, you know, all the other animals that we live with, too. And really interesting. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it's kind of like uh, like Supriya said, it's it's a little apocalyptic and it's uh, probably a bit of a wake up call that most of us could use. Bruce says, I teach bear and wildlife awareness more and more of what I teach is about hybrid species spread and animal insect vectored diseases. He said it's here, uh, just no one wants to hear about it. That from Bruce, uh, and I'm writing down Bruce's name because I'm going to track him down online and ask him to come on the show. Bruce, you can send us a, an email. How about to talk at ryanjesperson.com? I'd be fascinated to pick your brain, my man. Let me read from this piece for a second. Like for the world's viruses, this is uh, in the Atlantic.com, Ed Young. I'll just read a little piece of it. He says it's an, a time of unprecedented opportunity for the world's viruses. That's not what you want to hear. An estimated 40,000 viruses lurk in the bodies of mammals, of which a quarter could conceivably infect humans. Most do not because they have few chances to leap into our bodies, but those chances are growing. Earth's changing climate is forcing animals to relocate to new habitats in a bid to track their preferred environmental conditions. Species that have never coexisted will become neighbors. 
creating thousands of infectious meat cutes in which viruses can spill over into unfamiliar hosts and eventually into us. Mm-hmm. Many scientists have argued that climate change will make pandemics more likely, but a groundbreaking new analysis shows that this worrying future is already here and will be difficult to address. So that's the piece in The Atlantic. You can read it at theatlantic.com. Ed Young is the author of that. Jean Charest, in just a moment, coming up on the show. Right now, I want to remind you that coming up on Sunday, Sunday is May 1st, which means 15% off all grocery purchases $75 or more at Friesen Brothers across the province. That's the first of every month at all 16 locations across Alberta. Friesen Brothers wants to remind you as well, we're heading into barbecue. No, we're already in barbecue season. And it's a great time to check out their custom Friesen Brothers barbecue sauce. It could be the world's best, including Ooh. original honey garlic chicken and rib and hickory you can find them all at the Friesen brothers across alberta for more than 65 years alberta grown and alberta owned what are you are you like a honey garlic guy chicken and rib guy original i do like like a teriyaki and honey garlic that that kind of area of the spectrum there you go on on your grilled zucchini maybe (laughs) oh love hey grilled corn on the cob amazing now we're talking athabasca university is canada's online university with accredited world-class online programs and courses that offer, most importantly, above anything else, flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. You can browse programs and courses today at AthabascaU.ca. You just punch in the code words. You use their very easy drop-down menus. Before you know it, you've got dozens and dozens of options, some of them micro-courses, some of them full programs. It's a great time to reinvent yourself. Prepare yourself for a new job market with Athabasca University. And our friends at Eden Landscaping want to remind you that they've got more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area bringing outdoor spaces to life. Just go to landscapeedmonton.ca and click on their portfolio. That's where you'll be able to view some of the beautiful things that they've done, including an ultra-modern installation, a natural beauty installation that works with the shape of the land, some nice, big, beautiful rock features there, and then the stunning fitted stonework that a lot of people are loving these days. Plus, they have the front yard the the uh, these butterfly programs, Johnny. I, I love saw these them. ones with like the native grasses and yeah. the plants. They help the pollinators. The They're on top of it all. Very trend forward mm-hmm. at Eden Landscaping. You'll find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. Hanging tight to talk to Jean Shrey in just a second. Or are we chatting with his team at this moment? Where yeah, are we so his it? reps are here. We're just waiting for okay, Mr. Okay, good Shrey. stuff. So he's coming up in just a second. We've got a lot of questions for him that have been submitted by you, and we really appreciate that. You know, you can follow the show at Real Talk RJ on Twitter. And we always want to make sure that the questions that you're hearing from newsmakers, right, and in, in particular in this type of circumstance where it's somebody that wants to be the leader of a major political party in Canada, people are curious to know. What's it going to look like under your leadership? What are your priorities? How will you answer this or that? How will you manage this important file? Or how will you manage this delicate situation? Some of the questions that you've asked us have been interesting to see where your priorities are at. Like Laura, for example, wants us to ask what will he do or will he support a change to proportional representation? Uh, Laura's priority is what she describes as a more workable parliament. 
That's a really interesting question. Dave wants us to ask about guns. Yuri's curious to know for Mr. Charest's thoughts on the potential decriminalization of drugs other than cannabis. That's a great question. Brock wants to know if he supports carbon pricing and the carbon tax. Now, Brock submitted that question yesterday. We're certainly going to ask Jean Charest about his environment and clean growth plan that would drop a consumer price on carbon. And Brock also wonders when will he start heavy campaigning to counter Pierre Polyev's rhetoric and what Brock describes as divisive messaging to Canadians. Meg is certainly not alone. She wants us to ask about whether or not Jean will repeal the $10 a day daycare that Megan says we all worked so hard for. Riley wants to know Mr. Shrey's position on abortion. Shania is wondering about the 94 calls to action as a result of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report being released to Canadians. That's a great question. Flinters wants to know about the solution to the housing crisis, right? Lucy, climate change. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here that really gives us a good sense of where people are at, and we appreciate you taking the time to send in those questions as well we're also taking your emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com and that includes emails that are submitted for trash talk that's coming up a little bit later on in the show today and of course this is a great way for you to also remind us the type of stuff you'd like to have on the show the types of subjects that you'd like us to take on and cover and that includes that blood ban we've heard from a couple of you already the blood ban being lifted this, the tone of the emails that we've received thus far, I have to say, have been optimistic, but demanding more. So that's the tone I would describe of the emails we've seen to this point. Where do you land on it? Uh, the, the ban on individuals that would have participated in anal sex remains. So has the discriminatory policy really been lifted? You can let us know what you think. And as mentioned on Monday, we'll take on that story, that developing story that was announced yesterday afternoon by Canadian Blood Services. Our next guest has been the premier of Quebec. He's been the leader of the progressive conservatives. He's been the federal environment minister, and he wants to lead the conservative party of Canada into the next federal election. He's on the campaign trail across the country right now, in particular right now, speaking to those living in prairie provinces. It's a pleasure to welcome to the program Jean Charest. Good morning to you, and thanks for making time for us today. Thank you very much, Ryan. It's a real pleasure to join you. Thanks. How does, Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. How, did, how does campaign strategy or how does the tone of the campaign change uh, if, you're, <laughs> if you're in Quebec or the Maritimes or out here in the prairies? Well, it's a very it's a, a very different campaign, depending, I guess, on where you are. But, you know, Ryan, it's interesting because I find the media have difficulty reading the campaign of what it is. This is a campaign where the members vote. Right now, we're all in the process of recruiting new members, and we have until the 3rd of June to do that. And all those who are members as of that date will be eligible to vote during the summer. Then it's a preferential ballot done by a mail-in ballot. You choose your first, second, third choice. And it's 100 points per riding. So, you know, it's, it, the mechanics of it aren't easy to grasp for the public in general. But uh, I feel very good about the campaign. The other thing I noticed, all you know, you'll notice the the people who are the most covered, or let's call them the front runners, are running very different campaigns. All four of them, very very different campaigns, and there's probably good reasons behind that. But I feel very good about my campaign. I just came off the road of ten days in Ontario, and I was in New Brunswick and PI over the last few days, and I had a very good run. So I'm feeling I'm feeling very good about my campaign. 
it's it's interesting for you to kind of remind everybody as you're talking to us about how it works and how it plays out. And your goal right now is to be selling memberships and there'll be mail-in ballots. And here's how it stacks up, you know, geographically or within the different jurisdictions across the country. And it feels like you're speaking directly to the, the so-called front runner who's drawing all the big crowds in Alberta right now, who's making all the noise, who's getting all the attention on social media, Pierre Poliev. And a lot of people, national commentators, as if I need to tell you, have been wondering, yeah. well, where's the inspiration of the charade? campaign you know Uh, some strategists have said he shouldn't even be trying to participate in the rally game if he can't pack the house with more than pierre can so how do you process that kind of stuff and what would you like to say to those critics beware the shiny objects uh, ryan beware of shiny objects and you know uh, bernier also had big crowds Uh, the last time i looked bernier wasn't sitting in the house of commons the other thing to keep in mind ryan is that you know the front runners in the last two campaigns, lost. And you can see why that happens because the logic of first, second, third choice means that if you're the front runner, you top out after the first ballot. And then the logic of the vote flows in in another direction. And so, and by the way, Ryan, I'm I'm the underdog in this race. I I have no problem with that. I've been an underdog all my life. Uh, I'm very comfortable being the underdog. It works for me. I joke with the media. I always remind them I'm not good at winning polls. I don't win polls. I win election campaigns. Mm. That's what I'm good at. And that's what I'll do for this party if I become the leader. Was it fair to say that that underdogs have won the last two conservative leadership races? Yeah. Andrew Scheer was the so. underdog. And, and I think Aaron O'Toole was the underdog, if you consider yeah. Pierre, Peter McKay to be the, the front runner in the last one. So if, if history is kind to you, uh, it could be three for the last three. Bradley's watching us live right now. He says, you know, the problem uh, with conservative leadership races is you need to be right wing to get the leadership and then you need to swing center to get public support to become prime minister. And I think there's a certain truth to that. So how do you navigate that? I navigate it by being who I am and I'm a conservative. And then there are lessons that, you know, your common your, your, your listener is putting his finger on something. There's a lesson drawn from the last race because Aaron O'Toole made an effort to reach out, uh, let's call it on the right. And then when he was a chosen leader, tried to recenter. I, I'm not going there in the sense that what I am offering is who I am, my track record and what I've done. And, uh, and I'm a conservative who believes in conservative values and I practice them. And that includes fiscal conservatism. And I'll give you a real time example. When uh, this government now in Quebec, Legault, came into power uh, three years ago after 15 years of a liberal government, which is a coalition liberal government of federalists, by the way, like BC, for those who say, well, he's a liberal, he inherited, Ryan, an $8 billion surplus, a higher credit rating in Quebec than Ontario. And that's after 15 years of discipline. That's that is real fiscal conservatism. It's not a speech or a slogan. It's actually an outcome. And, uh, and over time, I believe in a market-based economy. I believe in families, all sorts of families, and the support that, uh, that they need to be able to thrive and be the cornerstone of our society. I believe in law and order and respecting the rule of law. I believe in Canadian conservative federalism, which has always worked very well for the country. When we've had national conservative governments, big things get done. And I've had enough, like other conservatives, of losing. Have you had enough of losing in 15, 19, and 21? And if the answer is yes, 
well, let's, you know, I want to be a leader who's going to unite the party and deliver a national government. That's where I'm at. To be fair, the previous conservative government had a tough time getting big pipeline projects built. And, and yes. the promises that you're making, uh, I mean, when it comes to your energy policy, that's essentially the center message of it. And I want to talk about dropping the consumer carbon tax because that's the one that's getting people's attention. Uh, but yeah. the environment and clean growth plan that you've dropped talks about uh, repealing uh, bills C-48 and C-69 colloquially the tanker ban and, and the no new pipelines act that's what conservatives have been calling it yeah. and you also talk which which is interesting and you know it'll get people's attention about the critical infrastructure protection act in other words it'd make it a criminal offense to interfere with the construction of a pipeline now you know uh, of course you're touching on this that that this also relates to reconciliation and indigenous relations across canada and a lot of the opposition of pipelines most especially on the west coast have involved indigenous or first nation communities that have said they don't want these running through their back yards and we've seen it with the construction of the lng pipelines we've seen it with uh, controversy around northern gateway and even tmx so so how do you find that balance i mean how do you be a person a leader that comes to the table and says i take reconciliation and indigenous consultation seriously we need this to be able to pass through the courts like former prime minister harper was yeah. unable to accomplish but at the same time we're going to be very pro energy on this and we're going to be steadfast in that commitment you need a very clear position to start with i am pro resources for this country. I did a plan called Plan All for Northern Quebec for the uh, for the mining sector, but I'm pro oil and gas. I'm pro pipelines. By the way, what I'm saying to you here today, Ryan, I say in Quebec. And uh, so I'm, I'm not giving you a different version of what my policies are, depending on where I am. And in Quebec, it, admittedly, it's a tougher sale. It is, I know. But I was when I was premier and after when I left office. And, but I also think recent events point to a different way of looking at these projects. There's a new light. I mean, this war in Ukraine has really shed light on two critical issues. One, the issue of security of supply for our country, which is an issue of sovereignty, which we can't take for granted. The second one is, had we had our act together, we could be a supplier of clean, ethical energy to Europe who are in this cruel situation of buying oil and gas and indirectly funding Russia to invade Ukraine. I mean, isn't that a, a reason to look at what we're doing now and ask ourselves, did we make the right decisions in the past? Can we do better in the future? Now, I want to be clear on one thing, Ryan. I can't, no one can impose this on the provinces. We can't just barge in and say, we're going to impose this on you. And now, by the way, Albertans wouldn't want that because Albertans in Quebec on this stuff, they think, think the same way. I mean, they want to run their own shop. And they're right to. But you need a prime minister who has a clear determination to do it. And I'll give you another example that may sound insignificant or a detail. It ain't. Did you ever hear Mr. Trudeau get up and say, I'm in favor of Energy East? I mean, it, there's no big projects that get done unless there's leadership. I know I've been there. Unless someone stands up and says, let's do it. It would have been perfectly fine for the prime minister to say, I'm in favor of Energy East. We should get it done. And we'll get the environmental assessment right, and we'll we'll deal with all these issues. But he never did that. And if you don't have that kind of leadership, well, then none of these big projects get done. Now, I, I, I'm I'm losing your question here on infrastructure that I want to address because yes, I do think we need to change the law and be very firm in one clear lesson that we've learned when it comes to critical infrastructure that is key to making this economy work. We have to be very clear with every Canadian that no one has the ability to go out there and, and break the law or support those who break the law and says, I'm doing this because it's popular. 
And it's not a matter, and yes, we can be very clear on that with First Nations and indig Indigenous Canadians, while at the same time working with them. And in my plan, what I included, by the way, is something that is inspired by Alberta. In Alberta, you put together a corporation to allow Indigenous communities to participate in the equity of these projects. Well, I would do the same thing. I'd, I'd steal that page out of Alberta's book which I think is a good idea. And I'd put it in the Canadian federal book and say, why don't we do this across the country? And that will help us get projects done. What would you say to, to critics of yours uh, who include uh, political commentator Andrew Coyne uh, talking about your plan earlier this week? He says, and yet another conservative leadership candidate opts for a climate plan that will do less at a higher cost than just pricing carbon. A lot of the experts believe that for these plans uh, to be credible and taken seriously they have to include a consumer price on carbon you don't believe so you want to lift it you'll see some support from consumers that's for sure people yeah. whose cost of living is rising but how do you maintain credibility for the bigger plan i've been around this a long time i led the canada's delegation in 1992 at the earth summit in rio that signed on to the climate change convention i was the canada was the first g7 country to do it <coughs> i've attended a lot of cop meetings and I did something in Quebec that isn't a consumer tax. In Quebec, it's a carbon trading system with California. Now, that's for Quebec, right? That may not be for Alberta. It may not be for Ontario. But that's, that's what our federal system is about, allowing the province to make the choice that suits its own purpose and reality. And it works in Quebec, and people support it. It's not a consumer tax. And what Andrew Coyne, I'm, I'm sorry to say, is reporting is an old thing about how we deal with this issue. I'd like you, and you, can you remember, Ryan, any government, provincially or federally, setting targets and actually meeting them? I mean, I don't, I don't think it's ever happened. And, and yet we go on publishing press releases. Press releases do not reduce carbon in the atmosphere. Can, can we all be clear on that? I'm being, you know, I'm being a, a little caricatural here. Press releases do not reduce carbon emissions. What they do is set another press release. I've set an objective that I think we can meet and maybe exceed. And if, we, if we're smart about it and get it done, and that means carbon capture and storage and hydrogen and biofuels, small modular reactors. We're not going to get to zero uh, and in 2050 without nuclear, for example. And I'm clear on the objective. We all agree, industry, provinces, the world, that the objective is zero emissions in 2050. Let's be smart about getting there. Meg's watching us live and wants me to ask if you will try to repeal the $10 a day daycare that Meg says we all worked so hard for. What's your plan there? Meg, I will respect the agreements that were signed by the Kenny government or Scott Moe's government and the government of Doug Ford. I, when I, let me share a story with you. When I came to Quebec politics in 98 to lead this coalition of federalists to fight back against Lucien Bouchard's uh, uh, proposal to hold a third referendum, I criticized the daycare system because I thought as a conservative, I thought it was too expensive. You know what, I was wrong and I admit I was wrong and I took a political beating out of it, but that's not the point. I was wrong because if it's done right, what it does is a few things. First of all, it creates a conditions by which a family can better choose to have children because the obstacle of daycare, its access and affordability is much better at a reasonable price. And the second thing about it is that it allows women in particular to choose. It's a choice, no one's forcing them, but it allows them to choose to go in to the labor market and work and earn. 
And in Quebec, we went from the lowest level of participation rate of women in the labor market to among the highest in the world. And that means more money for the family if they choose, Ryan, to do so. The third thing is that it reduced poverty. And, uh, and that's what we were very proud of. And my, when I was premier, we reinstated family allowances that were non-taxable, weighed in favor of low-income families, and it had a real impact on reducing poverty in Quebec. So I would do more, but I'd go a step further. I would enhance the tax credit for families who do not use the government $10 system because not everyone will want to use it or can. I'd enhance the tax credit. I would take federal taxes off the amount of money that parents receive when they're on parental leave. I would allow a parent on parental leave to earn up to $20,000 to reintegrate the labor market without being uh, uh, clawed back. And I would allow a, a mother who is pregnant in the third month to have, immediately have access to the child tax credit to better prepare for when that child will be born. So it, this isn't just, it's economic issues, it's reducing poverty, it's increasing the birth rate if we get it right. And there's limits to what we can do there, that's for sure. But th those are all the things that make it work. So I would maintain them. And I'm the only candidate I know in this race who's actually saying I would do it. If anyone else is obfuscating about it, you should be suspicious of what their intentions are. One of those uh, running against you for leadership of the Conservative Party essentially brought coffee and donuts to the Ottawa occupiers for a series of weeks two months ago. This weekend, Canada's capital is bracing for hundreds of motorcycles and other vehicles. They're calling it the Rolling Thunder Convoy. Uh, if you were Prime Minister, what would your message be to the convoy participants this weekend? that they have a perfect right to express themselves. And, you know, coming out of COVID, this is our third year. People are tired, they're frustrated. <clears throat> Some of them are angry and they have the perfect right to say so. And, uh, and, a, and a leader and a prime minister should listen to them. This whole thing we had last winter was such a total, total mess. How, and you have, we have to, how could this happen? I mean, how could it be allowed to happen? And the, the first responsibilities with the prime minister who actually fanned the flames by making disparaging remarks that were unhelpful and then was missing in action. But I, I also, and the point I'm making here, Ryan, and I feel very strongly about, is that if you have the privilege of being a legislator, because it's a privilege, I'm making laws that I'm gonna impose on you, for example, Ryan. That's what, that's what happens when you're a member of parliament. You have the, you say to Ryan, I'm going to make a law here. And you know what? You have to obey it. Otherwise, you're sanctioned. I can make law, change laws. But you don't have the privilege of actually being above the law or supporting those who break the law. That's, that's, that I feel very strongly about that because that's a real test of leadership. And you know what? Sometimes it's more popular to do the reverse. And you have to have the ability to stand up for what's right. I did it on Bill 21 in Quebec. You know, this bill that outlaws religious symbols. It was proposed to me as premier uh, around 2008, 09. And I said, no, it would have been much more popular for me to adopt it. And uh, because it's a popular bill now in Quebec, this new government brought in Bill 21 and I'm opposed to it. But uh, back then I was asked to do it and I said, no, I'm not gonna do it because it's wrong. It's, it's contrary to the Quebec charter, contrary to the Canadian charter. And if it goes to the Supreme Court of Canada, I'm, I, I'm going to, my government will speak to it. So, so that's, that's where I am on this issue.
Uh, we got a few more minutes with you, Mr. Schrace. I want to fit in a couple yeah. of questions from audience members. Yuri uh, notes that April 20th, so-called 420, was last week. He wants to know how you feel cannabis legalization has gone in Canada, and what are your thoughts on the potential decriminalization of other drugs? Well, on cannabis, the jury's still out. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, on the way that it's been deployed. I, I heard about it earlier this week. From I was out in New Brunswick, Ryan. Uh, from someone in the industry who's saying it wasn't going well, that the, the the companies that were started are all in financial trouble. I'm not sure exactly on how. Uh, I'm not a I you know I I'm not a big fan of encouraging the use of drugs. Obviously, no one is. I understand that, but uh, but we have it. So there it is. On decriminalizing other drugs, I think uh, I'm I'm skeptical also. I just, I'll tell you what I'm skeptical about. And I'm not saying I won't listen to, to those who want to make that case. I, I just don't want to, I don't want the use of drugs, whether legal or illegal, by the way. Let's open the conversation much largely. And this includes alcohol and other, you know, I just want us to encourage uh, healthy lifestyles as much as possible. <clears throat> and rather than stigmatize folks with either legal or illegal or alcohol, just encourage people to, uh, to stay away from as much of these uh, drugs as, as possible in our lifetime. And that we should make that case very, very early on the young people, not stigmatize them and be, you know, moralist, but just make the point that, listen, if you want to have a full life and you want to be happy and healthy, whether it's illegal or legal drugs, it, it's, that's not the answer. To, to be fair, though, that does sound a little bit like the just say no Nancy Reagan thing, which I, I don't I know. know that it worked. Well, I know, Ryan, I know, I, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be, and I was a one-time minister of youth. So I can tell you one thing. If you're out there telling young people don't do drugs yeah. or you know, certain, it ain't, they're not, you're not going to connect with them. And parents have a very important role, by the way, in this respect. They're the, we, I don't know how many times we underestimate how important the voice of parents are in the, in the life of their children. They, you know, and it's, a, it's about example. It's not about the words they choose. It's really about example. They just, I just think everyone needs to be conscious of that. But I hear you. I hear you. And uh, I, I'm just not a fan of, of the use of drugs. Uh, there's a lot of parents. You want to talk about parents. You want to talk about middle-class Canadians that are extremely concerned about inflation, about the rising cost of living, about what's happening in housing markets in the major urban wow. centers and elsewhere. Flinters has submitted this question by way of our Twitter account, uh, asking what are your policy ideas to help address or solve the housing crisis across the country. How would you approach it as prime minister? Well, Flinters, thank you for the, this is a big issue, by the way, Ryan, it's coming up everywhere, everywhere in every, every part of the country with a different, you know, variations on the scene because it's not as, as strong a problem or a bigger problem in certain parts as others. We need more houses. We need to encourage municipalities to build more rapidly to do different formats. That'll include, uh, you know, uh, triplex and quadruplex, but also co-op housing, intergenerational housing. We just need more houses. I mean, we need to do everything we can. And then we have to be careful on what, how we do this because it's tempting to sort of say, well, let's give people more money so that they more rapidly and young people so that they can buy, which is okay. But let's keep in mind that it, you may end up fanning the flames of inflation by actually injecting more money into the. So build, build, build is the answer. We need to build more rapidly and build everywhere to have a better uh, market. On inflation, there's two things. We have to control spending. Spending is feeds inflation. 
and we need to do that uh, as uh, as rapidly as possible so that we're uh, we're dealing uh, with that and the bank of canada has a role to play obviously in this regard <coughs> and they're the ones who control the monetary policy they have a mandate to do that so they're going to have to look have a hard look at uh, at interest rates and the problem we have in canada ryan which is very particular to canada is that household debt is very high in our country higher than other countries and at record levels the second thing is that the housing residential housing market's a huge chunk of our economy bigger than it should be at 10 percent of gdp we're vulnerable the point i'm making is that we're vulnerable we're vulnerable and we have to be careful on how we administer our money here Canada's Conservatives will announce their new leader on September 10th. Will it be Mr. Jean Schrey? We'll wait and see. Thanks for your availability today. We appreciate you taking these questions. And Ryan, one last thing. If, you, if people want to support me, go to jeancharret.ca and do like Ryan. Become a member and support Jean Charest. Oh, did I say that, Ryan? <laughs> I'm hey, sorry. I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule anything out, Mr. Schrey. No. Thank you very much. I appreciate Thanks. that. There, there you go. Um, I, I've got to, yeah, I've got to say he... He pronounced this is going to be the most obvious thing I'm ever going to say. He pronounces his own name so beautifully. I know. And I just feel like such a hack as I'm thanking him for joining <laughs> us. But you can see on his website there, that's it. They say join the team. And then, in, in, in uh, you know, they capitalize the whole thing that is built to win. That's the slogan, Joshua, built to win. You think he is? What do you make of what you just heard? You can send us your feedback anytime. Our inbox, obviously open, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Talk at ryanjesperson.com. Thanks to everybody that submitted questions. We got to as many uh, as we could. I appreciated Yuri's about decriminalizing all drugs, the harm reduction conversation yeah. in Canada. You know, we, we've talked so much about COVID, and rightfully so, Obviously, mm. I'm not saying we should not have been dedicating our efforts and our conversations to COVID, but there is another health crisis in the country, and there that is. is death by uh, drug poisoning and overdose and fentanyl. And I mean, obviously, uh, we're losing hundreds, thousands of Canadians every single year. And for whatever reason, uh, in particular, I mean, across the country, obviously, I'm not diminishing deaths anywhere else, but Alberta and B.C. have had a, just really a, bad. A, a really horrible stretch. And mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I think a lot of the conversations, viewers like Yuri, want to know what is this you know, party, uh, if he's leader, and, and ultimately if he's able to form government, what would that government do with regards to their approach on harm reduction? One great question. You know, cost of living, housing crisis, everything else. I didn't get to Jillian's question, which was... I was I'm, waiting. Because his team was... And we appreciate them making him available, and they're like, this is your last stayed question. Stayed longer than we, they had you to. You know, stayed great. a little bit longer than they had to, which was great. But Jillian had a great question, um, and uh, she says, I'm considering buying a membership, but I want to know, what are you going to do to restore discipline to the party? She says, I wouldn't mm -hmm. want to be embarrassed as a party member. How would you restore discipline? I think all the parties a need question. a little more discipline. Have you watched debating like <laughs> over the last few months yeah in the house it's well there's people there's people shouting over each other but, but, but some people really appreciate and i'm not saying that that's the best part of politics but some people appreciate the theatrics of it all it is but i mean you turn to the states and at least they let each other talk like at least they well, let each other finish a sentence yeah, I guess, some of the maybe. time you know? sometimes sometimes and then they get on twitter and then they get on twitter and all hell breaks <laughs> loose we were excited just a couple of days ago to announce to you that registration is now open for the inaugural real talk golf classic it goes thursday june 23rd at 2 p.m no johnny i want this 
I want that music bet because I'm gonna I'm gonna roll this right into Dairy Queen. All right, you watch how this is about to go. But the Real Talk Golf Classic, June 23rd. It's a 2 p.m. shotgun start out the Ranch Golf and Country Club. It's my home course. I absolutely love it there. It's gonna be a, a day you will not want to miss. All in support of our Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship. All proceeds from the tournament will be going to fund that scholarship that annually will award $5,000 to a post-secondary student that's lost a parent to cancer. You can go to ryanjesperson.com. You just click on the events link, and that's where you'll find the link to register for the golf tournament. It's nice and easy. just runs through Eventbrite. And, of course, if you'd like to sponsor that tournament, maybe you want to volunteer in the tournament, you can send us an email, all inquiries, to golf at ryanjesperson.com. I'm volunteering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are. I'll be spinning the You'll tunes. spinning tunes. And I'm setting it up. I'm not going to golf in the tournament. Yeah. I'm going to s- set up on a tee box so everybody that comes through, we can hang out with them. Nice. And I'm going to make sure that you and I are hanging out in the same vicinity. Awesome. And I'm going to make sure that there's some sort of like a food resource near us. I'll crank like, it. Like a grill or something or something. Amazing. That, and we'll just set up shop and people can roll through and maybe we'll hit their tee shots for them or something like that. I'll crank a couple balls. You can see my horrible swipe. Well, that's all right. It, just, it goes to the left. So I have to. Well, then you just got to aim to the right. right. That's what yeah. I do. We call yeah. that Teeson golf in our friends. Our buddy Jeff Teeson. Yeah. You know, you, you aim at 11 o'clock if you want it to wind up at 2 o'clock. It gets where it's supposed to. And then to. it just looks, it's just like this big sort of like swipe. It just goes across yeah. the whole fairway and lands. Now, you get screwed playing Tyson golf when you actually hit a good straight shot aimed at 11 o'clock. Right. You just blast it into all the houses. Works for me, though. No houses on the ranch course, which is nice. You're not breaking any windows. We're going to set you up for success June 23rd at the Real Talk Golf Classic. So I heard from uh, Mark and Michelle, the owners of the Dairy Queens in Northwest Edmonton. Yeah. And, of course, they partner up with Michael Lieber, who owns the Dairy Queen in Sherwood Park and the uh, Baseline Road. And they said, hey, you make sure you know. They said, we're in for the Real Talk Golf Classic. Amazing. They're going to be a whole sponsor. And, and they said, I don't know what this is. I don't know what these are. They said they're going to make dilly bar shooters. Oh, my Like, gosh. I don't know if those have booze in them. And they've got the plant-based dilly bars at Dairy they Queen, too. They have the plant-based dilly bars. So you and me will go shot for shot. I just crushed a <laughs> plant-based dilly bar just the other night. I kind of felt like I was eating health food in a way. It's. I think that's what like, it is, right? It, it's it's kind of health food. It's healthier food, maybe. I don't know if it is or not, but it was good. It was great. Yeah, little Wyatt Rudy in our house. He's he's the one that's making the decisions on Snack what we're going to pick up at Dairy Queen. And he was. He, I said, "What do you think about these ones?" I said, "There's no milk in these ones, right? They're dairy-free Dilly Bars." He's like, "Wow!" He said, "I think they're pretty." He just got chocolate all over his face. He goes, "I think they're pretty good, Dad." Atta boy, Wyatt. Atta boy, Wyatt Rudy. <laughs> there you go. Our friends at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge are going to be busy this weekend. A lot of people coming in to check out that brand new Dodge Challenger. Absolutely beautiful. Ask him about the Hellcat. That's the one. If 600 horsepower is not enough, upgrade to the Hellcat at the Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge locations that have better selection on Ram 1500 trucks and Jeeps than anybody else in the province. And not just on the new vehicle front, they've also got a great pre-owned selection. If you'd rather stay home while you do your short listing, you can shop their inventories online. You'll find the links to Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge under the Sponsors tab on our website site at ryanjesperson.com well every friday we wrap up our week of shows with a a cathartic exercise johnny puts on his five point (laughs) seat belt turns it up to 10 as terry and diener would say they turn down the suck and thanks to our friends at local environmental (laughs) we present something called trash talk 
And this one's a longer one from Lindsay. And so Lindsay owns Trash Talk this week. She says there's been a lot of Elon Musk Twitter talk on the show this week. And it got me thinking about the current state of social media and how it's changed life on planet Earth as we know it. We're more connected than ever, but we're also more alone than ever before. We're, we're more up to date on world events, but we seem even further from our neighbors, including in other countries. We share more of our personal details in a way that's less personal than ever before. Lindsay needs to write a book. Says, as we take the good with the bad, there's a need, there is a need for the platforms we all use, like Twitter, to be welcoming, to allow people to express free speech, but at the same time work to prevent harm. I'm not saying automatically that a billionaire owning a company is a bad thing, but if we allow the loudmouth, money-hungry space jockeys of the world to control the stream of our thoughts, feelings, and news we're doomed. Is it not concerning to anybody else that this man tries to rile up his followers to attack people he doesn't agree with? Hey, can you load up that Elon Musk tweet that I sent you just the other day? I think I sent it to you yesterday, Johnny. Do we still have it? The two that he asked where he said what he's going to do next, what he's going to buy next. You remember that tweet? He said, next up, I'm going to buy Coca-Cola to put the cocaine back in. Did you see that tweet from Elon Musk? He says, <laughs> let's make Twitter maximum fun. Last all night right. he said he's going to fill up all the Doritos bags to the top. <laughs> I missed that one. Yeah. This guy just dropped 43 Bs on Twitter, and that's what he's doing with it. I don't know. Coca-Cola with the cocaine back. Change the font. Yeah, Jack and Coke will never be the same. All right, back to Lindsay. Says, is it not concerning that he supports conspiracy theories and disagrees with COVID science? Is it not scary as hell that this man has been blowing cash on making sure that he can get off in space rather than making our lives here on the ground a better place? Thanks for the visual, Lindsay. I'm sorry, but a $60,000 electric vehicle is not the answer to global warming. A ticket to ride a rocket to Mars isn't going to solve the warming of the Earth starvation or make life better for the average family trying to make ends meet like mine now is it elon's job to save the planet no but he sure has acted like a savior so i'm holding his feet to the fire i'll wait to see what changes he makes to a platform in my opinion that's already satisfactory for the most part but if it's not making it safer for the users logged on every day i'm out will my 500 followers miss me Probably not, but I'll find a place where at least I know I can express myself without the fear of being attacked, threatened, or posting in fear. I'm all for opinions and free speech, but make it a place we feel invited to do so. If not, my Facebook, TikTok, and Insta will suffice. Do the right thing, Elon. All bolded up, Lindsay. Clean up the garbage on Twitter, and for the love of God, don't fill it with more ads, especially ones for penis pills, electric car joyride machines, (laughs) and tickets on a rocket to see the stars. Good luck, Musk. I'll be watching closely that from Lindsay nicely said Linz coming up next week as mentioned we'll take a look at that blood ban being lifted by Canadian blood services how legit is it actually plus epidemiologist Dr. Madhu Pai will join us Monday morning as we continue our coverage of COVID whether others are talking about it or not we'll get you what you need to know send us an email anytime positive reflections coming up Monday too have a safe and wonderful weekend Real Talkers one love Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Technical Producer John Hicks, Managing Director Josh Dunford, Account Coordinator Lawrence Sterlego, General Manager Katie Cook-Chivers, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Black 
Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.